And so, Father, we've already prayed, but I, I just want to stop again and just ask you to uh, help us proceed with great faith, believing your promises, trusting your word, exchanging our definition for, of life for your definition of life, uh, exchanging our definition of mission to embrace who you call us to and what you call us to. We need help this morning, and I need help. Help me to not say things that are uh, based on uh, opinion. But Lord, uh, help us stay close to your word. Lord, teach us, change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this whole Acts chapter 9 portion of scripture is all about the grace of God. And it's about how the grace of God comes to transform a life. And as we look at what it looks like for a life to be transformed, the, uh, the way in which these lives are transformed is uh, profound. It's, it's whole. It's, it's from beginning to end kind of transformation. And that is Saul's story. And so as we think about going, that's kind of how I'm phrasing it this morning. We're going from cold. That is, I have no interest whatsoever in God. Going from cold to bold. That is, being willing to stand up in Jerusalem and risk my life for the name of Jesus Christ. As we go from cold to bold, uh, we, we see here in this passage that there's a completely new mindset that comes. Everything has changed. You ever struggle with that? As we review kind of what we looked at two weeks ago, I asked myself, all what do you mean a complete, everything has changed? Has everything really changed? So breathing the same air, most of us will still have the same jobs. A lot of our friends remain the same friends. We still do the same things. And sometimes when we stand up and we say that Jesus changes everything, we have to kind of unpack and show what, what does that mean? That he actually changes everything. If you note the descriptions of Saul, even in Acts, we see that he, he approved of things that God disapproved of. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says here that Saul approved of the execution of Stephen. So he approved of putting someone to death and he thought he was doing God a favor by doing that. He thought, I'm, I am going to serve God by approving of something that God doesn't approve of. That's where his heart was. And we live in a whole world of people who think I'm acting spiritually and I'm going to do what I want to with my life and I'm going to convince myself that I'm serving God in the process. Saul was confident in his mind he was doing the right thing. He convinced himself that destroying the church, again, was doing God a favor. We could look at Acts chapter 8 and verse 3. I'm turning over uh, to Philippians. In Philippians, Paul writes a little, uh, just a couple of verses, Philippians chapter 3, about his story. You guys uh, probably read testimonies and you're encouraged to, to kind of think about, well, what does it mean that God changes everything? And Paul is writing in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, he's saying, look, let me describe my life to you before Jesus, so you understand where I was at. Uh, For we are the circumcision, he says, Philippians 3, 3, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Before Christ, he believed he was the answer. 
He put his confidence in the flesh. I myself, he says, have re- had reason to put confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, he says, I had more. He said, I, I was uh, circumcised on the eighth day. He kept the law. He was a religious giant. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe, of Benjamin, a Hebrew, of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. That just means he was a, a special religious leader in Jerusalem that got paid to be religiously educated and to make sure the people kept the law. He was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness under the law, I was completely blameless. And so Saul is saying, look, you want a definition of somebody who trusted self? It was me. And we live in a world like that. Maybe you have a Saul in your life. Maybe you've been a Saul at some point in your life where you trust the work you do to make you right with God. And when you are in that mode, most of the time you don't know it. You you think this is the normal way everybody has to please God. I'm going to do it better than anyone else. I'm going to uh, be more vigilant in my service. I'm going to be more careful in my keeping of the law. I'm going to be put forth more effort than the next guy so that I can feel like, well, at least I beat him, right? And so that's where Saul was. He had put his confidence in all of those things. His education, think about that. He has probably two, as Gary taught us two weeks ago, two doctorate degrees. He's got more education than anybody and the entire direction of his life was religion. He persisted in this mindset, thinking, I'm okay. I'm okay. And then, as we learned two weeks ago, he has this experience with Jesus on the road. And Jesus appears to him in brightness and with strength and power and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, okay, Lord, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so Saul comes to his senses and realizes that this one who came, Jesus, was indeed the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. He was indeed the promised one of God. And so the way that he uh, describes it in Philippians chapter 3, here are some of the, the ways that his life changed when he turned, when he relinquished control over to Jesus. Whatever gain I had, by the way, he had a job because of his education. So here he was after years and years and years of education. And for him to say yes to Jesus was to say no to his education and his job. Whatever gain I had, I'm turning back from it. Money, gain is the word there. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And this becomes the uh, controlling principle of living in life for Saul for the rest of his days. I want to know Jesus Christ. This is of surpassing worth. I used to collect stuff. I used to collect money. I used to collect uh, feeling good about myself. And now all I want to collect, all I value is knowing Jesus above everything. This is the radical transformation that we're talking about. For his sake, he says in verse 8, Philippians 3, I have suffered the loss of all things. 
And in fact, as I look at the heap of stuff that I have left behind to pursue knowing Jesus Christ, I now uh, count that as rubbish. It's trash. I'll never need it. I can easily unhook myself, unhitch myself from all the stuff that I went on collecting for years because I want to know Christ and I want to have the power and know the power of his resurrection. Be found in him having a righteousness uh, of not of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that God, from God that depends upon faith because this is what I want more than anything now that I may know him and the power of his resurrection that I may share his sufferings and become like him in his death. That's what happened when Saul was converted to Jesus. In a moment, he said, everything that I have based my life on, every pursuit of my heart, I'm going to count that as nothing because I want Jesus. And that's what we mean when we say, when you, when I meet Christ, everything changes. We treasure him and we don't treasure anything that this world can offer us. So that's a review from the lesson but before, from two weeks ago. But before we move on from that, can I just bring that to the next level for just a minute? Who, who's Saul for you? Do you have a Saul in your life? You have a, maybe a son or a daughter in your life that's educated in the mindset of this day and they are becoming hardened in that mindset. So much so that you are beginning to forget to pray for them. You're beginning to, to hold out hope that they might be transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That they, might, that, that they just might persist in this lifelessness. That they just might persist in this godlessness. That they just might persist in this mindset of embracing this world and all that it is. Maybe that's your Saul today. We're not blaming the institution necessarily. But we're simply, maybe they're just simply where they want to be. Maybe they are people who are literally lost in religion. And so it's not that they're far from religion. They're, they're far from Jesus, just like Saul was. Maybe embracing every intellectual excuse and they are saying yes to every excuse to reject the living God. Maybe that's your soul. Maybe your soul is a parent or a brother or a sister. And you don't even know how to start the conversation because you've started it a, a, a dozen different ways and every time you bring up the name Jesus, you get shut down. I had a grandmother who, uh, there were certain family members, she just was like, I, I just, I can't talk to them about this. This last week, uh, so, so I'll just tell you this, that one of the people in our family we've been praying for is the father-in-law of my my brother-in-law Bob, so my sister's father-in-law. And we've been uh, praying for, for the couple, mom and dad, for a long time, like 40 years long. And without getting too specific, they have been trusting a religious tradition, just like Saul did, for 40 years. In fact, for longer than that. They persist in saying yes to religion and spirituality, and they persist in saying no to Jesus. 
So this last week, uh, the family was out on Thursday night and saying, look, you know, the, the father is now sick in a assisted living place in Florida. My brother-in-law flew down a couple weeks ago trying to get things in order. And all these last two weeks, we're saying, okay, Lord, would you please open a door for him to share again? And in the last week, mom, who shut him down every time, said, tell me again, what's, your, what's the difference? What's the difference and this last week after the family, our family was gathered Thursday night to pray about this. And later that night, Bob shared the gospel with his dad, Dick. And after 40 years of persisting in unbelief, Dick trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. And can I just, can I just put, the, put it out there? I haven't been, I have not been praying faithfully for Dick for 40 years. My brother-in-law has. When I think of it, I, I pray for him. Nobody in this passage seemed to be praying for Saul. The Jews weren't praying for him. The Christians certainly, maybe they were praying for him. We have no record of it. We don't know. But here's what we do know is that there is no person either, either hardened in their secular naturalistic mindset or hardened in their religious reasons why they won't give Jesus the time of day. There is no person that is outside of the grace of God because the grace of God comes and it depends on an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus has grace for that hardened heart that you don't know about and I don't know about. It may not take you sharing the gospel, but man, let's double down in our prayer, in our prayer for these people that are standing seemingly so against Jesus. Maybe the hardened Jesus rejecter is you. This is the hardest one to ascertain. Because Saul would have said, I'm not a hardened God rejecter. God's hand's on me. I am a tool for the Lord, he would have said. I'm being used by him. And the only way that you or I are going to come to our senses if we are the ones who have convinced ourselves that we are in the right when we are in the wrong. We've convinced ourselves that we are spiritually alive when we are actually spiritual death. Dead is if we have an encounter with Jesus where he comes by his grace and shows us his goodness to us. And so, uh, here are the reasons why some of my friends who are Jesus rejectors, some of them know they're Jesus rejecting, and here's some of the reasons why. They say, look, I don't want to give up my naturalistic mindset. I'm convinced of it. And I will be thought a fool if I go back to my friends that I did college with or that I work with as a scientist or an engineer or a teacher, and I go back to them and say, I believe Jesus. I'll look like a fool. I can't do it. Some people say, if I accept Jesus, I'm going to have to accept the fact that my grandma, who's the best moral person I ever knew, but I know she did not have a relationship with Jesus, I'm going to have to accept what Jesus says about her eternal state. I'm not doing that. I can't. She's a better moral person than I am, and there's nobody that's going to tell me she's going to be eternally judged. I'm not accepting Jesus. Maybe if I accept Jesus, I have to accept what God says about my ethics and my life. 
my moral choices. I have to accept that he's the authority over me if I accept that he is the son of God. I can't do that. And I'm, I can no longer persist and live the life that I want to live if I accept Jesus. I'm going to stay in my bitterness. I'm going to stay in my unforgiveness. I'm going to stay in my anger. I'm going to stay in my confidence in me. And that's where Saul was until the moment when he had an encounter with Jesus on the road and he could not deny the power and strength and grace and existence of Jesus. And if you've got a Saul in your life, that's how we ought to be praying. That's how we ought to be praying. Well, Saul has this new message about Jesus. And so uh, when God's grace moves a person from cold to bold, there's going to be a whole new message. Look at verse 19b. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. So he persisted and stayed there for a while. And then immediately he proclaimed Jesus. Now, I think you and I could read that and um, just kind of move on. But I want to set the stage, okay? Here's Saul. He is in Damascus to arrest Christians. He goes to the synagogue purposely, and everybody knew that was going to be his final destination. It's like if you're going to, you know, watch opening day for the Milwaukee Brewers, you're going to eventually get to Miller Park. You're going to get in, in there. That's where the action is. Saul was going to the synagogue. And so here he is coming to the synagogue, and I could just see the little five-year-olds peeking out from behind their mom's, you know, leg. And look at, oh man, that's the guy? That's the guy they've been talking about? I've been overhearing adults talk about this Saul. Here he is. What's he going to do? And the Jews are not afraid because here he is, the Pharisee come to, to, to protect them from the evil Christian understanding, the evil Jesus understanding of the Older Testament. The, the, the Christians are probably not really present because they've probably identified Saul and they've gone underground and they've, they've hidden. And Saul gets up in the the synagogue. Wow. All right, this guy, so smart, leading, you know, oppressor, leading leader of Pharisees in Jerusalem, the big, the big capital city. He's come to Damascus to tell us a little bit. So the little kid's peeking out, and here Saul stands up in their midst, and do you see what he says? Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, now listen, he is the son of God. That's his message. In the Greek, it says, uh, this one is the Son of God. That is not what they thought he was going to say. It shocked them. When he said, this one, Jesus, he is the Son of God, it was the radical opposite of anything that Saul had said publicly about Jesus up to that moment. The word Son of God there, we could trace it through Luke chapter 1 and the end of the chapter when Mary has an experience with an angel and the angel says to her and says, well, you know, you're going to have a baby and you know what they're going to call him? Oh man, they are going to call him the Son of the Most High God. And Mary treasures it in her heart because she knew for sure that they were talking about Messiah, the, the promised one from the Old Testament, the only one who would come, but the one who would come who would take away the sins of the world. And Jesus, excuse me, Mary got it in her heart. We see that in Luke chapter 2, some evil spirits were interacting with Jesus, or excuse me, uh, Mark chapter 2, and some evil spirits are uh, interacting and they are starting to say, oh, son of God, if you come before the time, 
And Jesus shuts them up and shuts them down and won't let them keep talking about his identity as the Son of God. The words Son of God and Messiah are so closely connected as to be the same thing. Note that it says there, he is the Son of God. He's not a son of God because in Matthew chapter 16, here Jesus is talking to Peter and they're just about to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is going to reveal his glory and it's going to be this powerful moment. But before he says, okay, Peter, who does everybody say that I am? And Peter does not say the prophet. He says, oh, they're saying you're a prophet. You're a pretty good guy, I mean, but you're a prophet. And Peter Jesus turns the conversation and looks deep into Peter's eyes and says, but but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter, blessed are you. Blessed are you because this was not revealed to you by man. The only way you could know that Jesus is the Son of God is if it had been revealed to you from heaven itself. What a powerful proclamation. John 11:4. Hard things are happening. Really hard things. People are born into hard situations and they're physically sick. Why? So that at the right moment, the Son of God would be glorified when he healed them. John 20, verse 31. John, John could have written a million things about Jesus. Why did you write these things about Jesus? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. Matthew 16, we've already talked about. Uh, Matthew 26, the high priest, probably with Saul present, is my guess. The high priest is now examining Jesus and putting him on the, the witness stand and saying, are you the son of God? I'm thinking Saul heard Jesus say, you said it. And now here in this passage, As Saul has devoted his entire life to stand against Jesus. He stands up in Damascus and these words roll off his tongue for the first time ever. This one, Jesus, he's the son of God. Can I just tell you, that's our message here. That's what we are all about, by God's grace, all the time. Jesus is the Son of God. Listen, Jesus has come to transform the world. That's what he's going to do. That's what the church is all about. When we are together on mission, our message is we aren't going to change you slowly over the course of time, morally, decision by decision, if you meet with us four times a month for the next several years. We are not committed to slow moral change, though that will happen as you are in relationship with other believers. We are committed to a Announce and proclaim in your heart and my heart in the highways and byways of Sheboygan County, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the only hope for the broken heart. Radically reorient every decision of your life to his lordship and his kingship because as he was risen from the dead, he has announced, there is no other. He is the only one 
And that's what we announce week by week. That's what we announce and try to help you announce when you have phone calls on Wednesday mornings with your friends and there's Bible studies on Thursday nights. If you get involved in leading an Awana ministry, if you're involved in student ministries in the youth group, the message is the same everywhere we are in all of life. Jesus is the Son of God. And the rest of this is just working out. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like to radically reorient your life, to give up anything this world could offer you so you can... You can pursue the things that only Jesus offers you. Jesus has come to transform the world. He's brought the kingdom of God to earth. And we, the church, are ministers of that all-powerful, unstoppable mission. Look down at verse 20, we're still in verse 20. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he's the son of God. 21, and all who heard him were amazed. That word amazed, you'd think it would happen a million times in Acts. This is the sixth occurrence in the book. It's only going to happen twice more. It's going to happen in chapter 12 when people say, the Holy Spirit is going to come to the Gentiles too? Are you kidding me? And it's going to happen in, in chapter uh, 14 uh, as well. And let me just... I don't remember why, but we'll get there, okay? All right. Sorry. But I do know this is six of eight. But only a few times in the whole rest of the New Testament uh, is this word used. It's used, it's used here. It's used here. Um, uh, this person was lame for 38 years, and now they get up and run and jump. They were amazed. This, person, this word is used when we are a whole group of people with 14 or 20 different languages and one person stands up and talks and everyone in the place could hear in their own language that Jesus is the Christ. It was, they're amazed. This word is used when Jesus rises from the dead and uh, he, he defeats death forever and people, they're amazed. This is a rare word. This is like a, I remember where I was when that happened kind of word. This is a 9-11 kind of word. For those of you who are a little bit older, this is a, you remember where you were when certain people passed away or when the end of a war is announced or, or when we landed on the moon. You remember, where you, you remember where you were when Saul got up in the presence of all of these people and said, Jesus is the Son of God. You'll never forget that. Because that is a radical, holistic life change. I'll remember this for the rest of my life. Man, whenever anyone receives and learns to speak and live the message of Jesus is the Son of God, we should not be surprised, but we should remember it for the rest of our lives. Nine-year-old? Awana? Wednesday night? trusted Jesus as her Lord and Savior? Oh man, I hope I want to work you. Remember where you were for the rest of your life because that is not normal. That is not natural. That doesn't just happen. You don't just convince people of this. This is the work of the Spirit in your life. My brother-in-law's 
father trusts Christ as Savior after 40 years of being hardened against it in every way? That is not normal stuff. We should be shaken. We should remember where we are when we hear messages like that. Whenever anyone receives and learns to speak and live this message, this is what we're here for. This is what we're doing. This is why we're a church. This is why we have ministries. This is why we need one another. Moral transformation is beautiful, but the proclamation of Jesus, the living King, is the main, it's the main mission. So Saul immediately devotes himself. Look at verse 20 again. He's devoted to proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. Look at verse 22. But Saul increased all the more, even though there are some uh, people that, you know, resisted him. So his message, his message is Jesus is the Christ in verse 20, proclaimed. Look at verse 22 at the end. He was confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Proclaim Jesus. Prove Jesus. Proclaim Jesus. Prove Jesus. That's the mission. That's what Saul increased in his ability to do. I should be too. Do you have a, a, an ability to proclaim and to prove it? You prove it not only with your knowledge of the Old Testament and your knowledge of the scriptures. That's true. Let's prove it with that. Let's know it. Let's go and give reasonable reasons why we believe. But can I tell you what? You also prove it with the way you live your life. Because if you say, I trust Jesus, and then you're angry and anxious all the time, The people listening to you talking about how much you trust Jesus have a hard time getting that when there's inconsistencies. I'm not saying any of us are perfect. We're not. But I am saying that all of us should be increasing in proclaiming and proving from the scriptures and with our lives. And that's what Saul was all about. Listen, all of us are not going to be called to give up our vocation like Saul was. He, he had to say no to the Pharisee life, Right? We're not going to be called to give up the ease and comfort of our jobs. But from conversion, every believer is called to proclaim and to prove Christ. Every one of us. Some of you will do it publicly. Some of you will do it privately. Some of you will do it up in front of people. Some of you will do it one-on-one. -on -one. Some of you will do it and you'll be best at one-on-five teaching small Bible studies. Some of you will be best at talking with a, an unbeliever in the corridors of Acuity or Kohler or wherever you work. That's going to be your, your jam. But all of us are called to proclaim and to prove Christ. Awana workers, student ministries, teachers in the public schools and private schools and homeschools, politics, politicians, city workers, plumbers, moms, dads, soccer coaches, nonprofits, Kohler, Cuty, everywhere. Every believer is called to the same mission. Proclaim and prove Jesus. When God's grace moves a person from cold to bold. We're not only having a new mindset about our life and about Jesus and a, and a new message about Jesus, but we also have a, a new willingness to suffer for Jesus. You see that in Saul? Okay, so I had the cushy life. I had the money coming in life. I had the easy life. I had the stable life. And now I embrace Jesus. 
And if you will notice in verses uh, 23 through 31, there are two stories that are told almost identically. And when that happens, there's an emphasis going on. He proclaims Jesus. It gets him in trouble. There becomes a plot against him to kill him. That is only, and he's only saved by the ministry of fellow believers who help him get away. So that happens twice. It happens first in Damascus and then in Jerusalem. Now if you look down in verse 22 there, verse 23, it says, When many days had passed. So uh, if you want to check it out, you can check out Galatians chapter 1 later. Saul heads out to Arabia for like three years, does kind of a college thing, where he gets maybe another degree, you could say. But basically, he reorients all of his education about the Old Testament to Jesus for three years. He says, okay, let me understand this. Then he starts announcing to all the people in Arabia, because we have reference in Galatians and in Corinthians, that they were sick of him. And they're like, all right, get out of here. Get out of here. We want you gone. He goes back to Damascus. Get, get out of here. We want you gone. Right? He goes to Jerusalem. Okay. I want to read that part of it because look at verse 26. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. There's some funny stuff going on there. They attempted to join there. It's in the imperfect. That just means he kept on attempting to join them. He kept, he would not stop trying to join them. He didn't give up. Like, you guys are my guys. I got to be with you. And they kept saying, no, 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 no. We don't trust you. So the Pharisees didn't like him and were angry. And the Christians didn't trust him at all. He attempted to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him. for They did not believe that he was a, a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord and spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And then verse 29. And he he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Do you remember the Hellenists? The Hellenists, the last time we saw Saul in Jerusalem, he was holding the coats of all the Hellenists and saying, hey guys, Stephen, that guy, he's so annoying. I mean, just let's go ahead and stone him and put him to death. And it says there that he was approving of Stephen being put to death. Now, the very people that he was encouraging want him dead too. They want him dead too. Are you, are you willing to suffer to proclaim Christ? Have you heard of uh, Zhang Wen Shi? He's also known as Deacon Yang. And he's a Korean Chinese man who lives in Changbai, China. It's a town on the border between China and North Korea. So uh, North Koreans would often visit uh, China and they would buy stuff there and uh, not, you know, per, some, some of it was like for uh, their industry, but reselling in North Korea, but it was also medicine, also like just things to live with, help. So Deacon Yang would, would bring these people into his home while he lived in China and he would take care of them. He would host these, these North Koreans for days or weeks at a time before they would return to North Korea, giving them warm clothing, feeding them, providing supplies they might need for their return to North Korea. 
He saw this as his Christian duty to welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, and care for the sick. As a believer, he also shared about his faith to those who were willing to listen. A number of these North Koreans accepted the message of Christ and became Christians. Radical transformation. Some returned to Deacon Yang's home repeatedly for more Bible training. And in November 2014, Deacon Yang was kidnapped from China and put in a North Korean prison. An associate of his was drawn out into an open field and he was brutally stabbed to death. Deacon Yang was sentenced to 15 years in prison for his ministry to the North Korean people. And now in North Korea, he has served about 1,500 days of that sentence. We know he's still alive. And you can read more about him on the Voice of the Martyrs. And friends, that's one of dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of stories around the world of people who are in harm's way to proclaim Jesus. Are you in harm's way to proclaim Jesus? Put yourself in a position where you've got to sacrifice. Put yourself in a situation where it's going to cost you something. So a plot against Saul was uncovered in Damascus. A plot against Saul was uncovered in Jerusalem. Saul gave up this life of being wealthy and connected and at ease in this world for a life of poverty, according to Philippians 4.12. He gave it up for a life of being abandoned. Do you feel alone? Do you feel like all alone? Nobody's coming to your aid, to your rescue? Saul, I mean, he, he was totally rejected by all of the Jews that he lived with, the, both, both types of them. They're called Hebraists and Hellenists. Both of them reject him. And then he's rejected by the Christians too. He's, he's getting stiff-armed as he tries to join them. He's all alone. Later in his life, you remember, he'll say, here I am in jail and nobody's come to visit me. Saul gave his whole life up to have Jesus as his best friend and main friend And yeah, he did have some relationships. I'm not trying to paint the picture that he was all alone all the time, but he was willing to be abandoned if that's what it took and not complain about it. He suffered, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He suffered. We don't just endure it with some sort of like stiff upper lip. I'm I'm going to have to suffer for Jesus. Our afflictions, every one of our afflictions are gaining for us great heavenly reward as we are afflicted for the name and in, uh, in the service of our king. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and then I spoke. I believed and then I spoke. And that's what we're called to do. And so I spoke. We also believe. We also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. That's the future for those who trust the Lord. We will be in the presence of Jesus forever. And so what can they do to your body? What sacrifice is too great a sacrifice to make for that? It is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For all the stuff that we face right now, it's light and it's momentary compared to what the Lord is preparing for those who will be with him forever and ever. This eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. 
How sad would we be if we saw the great worth of Jesus and then went on living our day-to-day physical life as if our day-to-day physical life was everything. Now look, God has a mission for you in your day-to-day physical life. I'm not making light of our physical lives. We are called to witness for him. We are called to live. We are called to work for the good of the city. That's a beautiful thing. But all of that under the, the lordship of, of our, our Lord, Jesus Christ. And so, are you willing, am I willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus? Well, we're going to give you a couple of application points and we'll be done. Persist in prayer for the coldest appoint, opponent of Jesus. If you have a pen and you have your notes out, I would love for you, this is what I did this week as I was preparing, I jotted the name of, of the coldest opponent, the one who is, who is steeped in their, their verbal opposition to Jesus at every level, who simply, every time I talk about it, they will not give me an inch, and they think they're okay, and they don't want to talk about it, and quite frankly, I've stopped praying for them the way that I should. Maybe you haven't, but I have. And I needed to be reminded that if God has an experience with that rebel on the road, that the grace that God would give that person to call them into relationship with him is overwhelming and sovereign and irresistible and God can do it. There is no one outside of the grace of God And so I wonder if you would have a name that you put on that list and you say for the balance of this year and into the future, maybe like my brother-in-law, it'll be 40 years down the road and you'll still have this piece of paper and you'll still be praying for this person. And by God's grace, that person is going to come. They're going to come to Jesus. They're going to come to repentance. They're going to come to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. Would you double down with me on that one that seems like they are just stronger than grace? Because they're not. Maybe you'd want to pray like I, I jotted a prayer that I want to pray for these folks. Lord, for this person, I don't, want, I don't need them to be Saul. I don't need them to suffer great things. I don't need them to be the greatest missionary ever, but I need them to come to faith. I'm, I'm asking you, Lord, to ask them to, come to, faith, to bring them to faith. It means a complete transformation of everything they say they stand for, everything they say they value in this world. And I'm asking you to come by your grace and bring them into an encounter with Jesus by which they see the glory of his name and admit that Jesus is the Son of God. Number two, be willing to be humiliated for believing and proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. Some of us would say, well, I I believe that, but I'm not going to say it to some of the people that I, I live with. Just... I I really wrestled with using the word humiliated. But do you know that the scriptures tell us clearly that the world outside of Jesus is Lord, that the world outside thinks that it's foolishness to follow him? Are you willing to stand up? Not, Not that you walk around with this shirt that says, hey, I'm a fool. I'll let others decide how to do that. But definitely we walk around with a, I believe Jesus is the son of God. And if you count me a fool for that, I would just say this. I don't want to get caught into living this world, living in this life upside down. And part of me believes Jesus is the Christ and another part of me doesn't want anyone to think I'm, I'm a fool. We're a fool. 
if we believe Jesus is the Christ. Let's live according to that identity. Be willing to take a stand for Jesus Christ, even if it costs you the, the uh, respect of a group of people. Number three, pursue wisdom. In this passage, there are three examples of Saul standing and proclaiming Jesus, even if it costs him his life. And there are two examples of him running for the wind. One time, he gets left down in a basket and runs off. And another time, he escapes out the back door to Caesarea. So it's not always wise to stand and proclaim, no matter what. And it's not always wise to run and preserve your life. And so we need wisdom to know. How do we know? One of the ways that Saul seems to know is that he was in relationship with people enough that they were saying, okay, well, you know, now if, ah, it's too dangerous. You got to go. Right? And so, he, so both times, it was people that said, you know, I'll let you down by the window or it's time for you to go because this is getting crazy. And so that's one of the key ways we're going to know whether it's time to stand and proclaim or whether it's time to run for the hills. The last one is this, be comforted in your fear of the Lord. God will faithfully multiply disciples. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing in this church. That's what he's doing in this world. His mission of reaching this generation is going to happen. Be comforted in that. It is all powerful. God is, God is king of this universe. He's going to multiply disciples. And we're going to watch it happen. We're going to be a part of it happening. And I invite you, whether in the church gathered, whether Wednesday night gathered, whether in the formal ministries gathered, or whether out in the, the city and the highways and byways of Sheboygan County, scattered in your work, by God's grace, he is going to build a kingdom whereby the people in the kingdom will believe and act upon this. Jesus is the Son of God. Let's stand and be dismissed. Father, I pray for the one who's here today who's like Saul. And maybe they just realize they're like Saul. Maybe I, I came in here thinking, I'm, I'm pretty good with God. But we have to come to the point where we submit our lives to Jesus. Walk in his ways. He is our Lord. And so, uh, Lord, help us. Help us here today. We pray your blessing over us as we are dismissed from this. I pray for every name written on every piece of paper or every heart in this room that we are praying for. As we bring them to you this week, we are asking you to have Damascus Road, to have uh, uh, interaction with our loved ones, encounters with our loved ones where you bring grace to their lives. Dismiss us with your blessing, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.